3: Jmenu koalci, syna i ducha svatého. Amen. Přiznáváš, že se součastnila čarodějnický shromáždění na Petrových kamenech, jako tobě vypověděli tři spoluúčastníci před svou smrtí a čtyři, kteří ještě žijí?
5: Na Petrových kamenech jsem nikdy nebyla.
3: Kolikrát kolika svědky nás můžeš přesvědčit, že není pravda? Co o nich sedma osobná tebe vypověděla?
5: Nemohu přece dokazovat, kde jsem nebyla a co jsem nedělala.
3: Znám tě, Zuzanu, od malička. Vždycky jsem tě měla rád. Řekni pravdu. Přiznej si, když projevíš lítost, Bůh ti odpustí. Zuzana Fobliková svou zatvrzelosti nutíš soud, aby přistoupil k tortůře. Tak přece promluv.
5: Nemohu říkat nic jiného, než že to není pravda.
3: Mistře Joklem, přines palečíce. učinit doznání.
5: Ne. Uši nechte. Vydržela torturu, je nevina.
3: To jen její ganán dělá tělo necitelné. Pokračuj, Byl s tebou na Petrových kamenech. Děkan Lautner. Děkan Lautner. Bývala jsi s ním v říčném spojení?
2: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Ms. Rain Alexander. Hi, how are you? September continues with a look at Odakar Vavra's Witch Hammer, based on the 1963 book by Vaclav Kaplisky. The film looks at the paranoia of a witch hunt in Moravia during medieval times. And being released in 1970, the film also looks at the persecution of women, as well as the trials in the communist system. We will definitely be getting into spoilers as we go along. You have been warned. So, Sam, when was the first time you saw Witch Hammer, and what did you think?
6: The first time I saw it was probably five or six years ago when I got into slightly more deep cut Czech cinema and went beyond the sort of typical things like Valerian or Week of Wonders and Daisies and was I think like a lot of people was very misled by this movie I assumed based on just the very brief description that I had seen online that it was gonna be a movie about witches when (laughs) as you both know it really is not it's great, don't get me wrong, but it I, I definitely expected something more like Blood on Satan's Claw, maybe, whereas this is way more Witchfinder General, like much more of a, a grim
0: drama than a supernatural witch movie.
2: And Rain, how about yourself?
0: I first saw this just a little bit ago, probably about a month ago for the first time. And uh, same, I was really expecting this to be more witch forward. Than it turned out to be, but you know that's actually the same thing with Witchfinder General and you know many other many other sorts of films that uh, purport. It's like the Mummy, you know how there's really actually no mummies in the Mummy,
6: or there's about thirty seconds of Mummy.
2: Not a lot of witches, not a lot of hammering, more screwing than hammering. Mm-hmm. It's more <laughs> about that book. Yeah, all about, and I don't even want to begin to try to pronounce the Latin name for the book, which is basically the handbook as to how to conduct one of these witch hunts and how to find witches among your community. And it's a lot harder than building a bridge out of one of them.
6: I don't know if you've ever tried to read the Malleus Maleficarum, but it is clearly written by a crazy person.
2: Is it written by the guy who they keep cutting to throughout the film, who I don't even know if he's really in the movie other than to be, I don't want to say a narrator, but he's the guy who you see, I think, very first shot, where he's just like, hey, women are evil, you really need to watch out because women are going to be witches and they're going to be trying to tear apart the community and they just keep cutting back to this crazy man throughout the entire film.
6: That's one of the things that I think is so interesting is the the parallels between the actual Malleus Maleficarum and the a- actual witch hunts and what this movie gets right is the Malleus Maleficarum was basically written by this extremist fringe nutso who pretty much made up all of this stuff about witch hunting and... It became so popular, I think, because of people's paranoia and all of these superstitious beliefs, that because of that popularity, the church sort of let it go on, even though it technically was considered heresy itself. And I think this movie really nails the fact that so many of those diehard Inquisitor types were not these holy men who cared about their communities, they were people either fueled by hate, hatred of women, trying to make a profit. And I almost think that if, maybe next to something like Haxan, this is probably the best sort of historical interpretation of how those witch hunts actually went down. But the super crazy thing is in this, They show you that maybe a couple dozen people were killed in this village, but really, it went on. I want to say it went on for like 20 years, maybe 30 years, and he killed almost 100 people.
2: It's a very loose interpretation of the book. I did like that they say that there's also... Actual trial transcripts are some of the source of some of the dialogue in the film. I was also very happy to see that Esther Kronbakova is a credited writer on here. She was only credited, what, like a dozen times in her career, though we have talked many times on the podcast about how important a figure Esther Kronbakova is and was, and just that she brought so much when she was doing the things behind the scenes, mostly costume design, but she always brought so much more to the party. And there's a nice, uh, an episode of uh, what is it? The golden sixties TV show from Czechoslovakia, where it is an episode on Adika Vavra. And he's talking, he's like, yeah, I hired her to do jewelry, but pretty soon I realized that she knew a lot more than that. And then they ended up working on this film together and that she's credited as a co-writer. I was very happy to see that. And I think, the amount of i don't want to say feminism because it's not necessarily feminism but bringing the awareness of how awful women were treated because i don't ever really get the upper hand at all that's just showing just how awful the system was, I want to say that a lot of that is credited to her because you could look at this as being like, well, it's kind of a, you know, look at the show trials that they were having in different places. And Favre even said like, oh yeah, this was very much inspired by the Slansky trials of, uh, I think, 52. You know, you've got that and you've got what was going on in the Soviet Union as well with all the show trials there. But then you also have the women angle, which I was very glad to see because women are just treated horribly in this movie. And it just really shows just what a disadvantage they were at during this entire period of time.
6: During that entire period of time, but also now in certain areas. And one of the things that I think is so frustrating about Krumbakova's career is sort of exactly what you were saying that, you know, it's, That idea that like, it's nice to see that she actually got a screenwriting credit here when, for those of you who don't know about her, I mean, most of the time, she put in all of this creative input and was just sort of like written off as the costume designer. She has those great themes about how power corrupts. And here it almost seems like she's using that sexual repression as kind of a symbol for political repression, which is interesting. And I don't think it's something you see super often. And definitely it works in a a witch hunting movie. But she also just has such great uses of things like the body and sexuality and pleasure that show up. Throughout her films, usually in really different ways, and this is such an interesting contrast with something else she worked on, like Valerie in Her Week of Wonders, where you see that idea of witchcraft and women's sexuality frightening people in a in like the opposite context.
0: One of the things that struck me from that golden '60s documentary interview, he talks about a, a piece that she added to it, which was the foot massage of the magistrate and um, you know, and it it struck the director. I think it struck him as like, wow, i never would have thought to put that kind of detail in here. And yet she does, which I think speaks Sam to your, your invoking of like what her, her, her like tactile, her bodily sense that she brings to these things. The other thing that really struck, like I hadn't really, um, I had no awareness of her involvement with this, with this film until I delved into it. And it's kind of amazing to look at her IMDb page and see that in 1970, she had Witch Hammer, she had Fruit of Paradise, and Valerie and her Week of Wonders all come out at this, like in the same year. I'm like, what a year. <laughs> what a year. What a year.
2: Uh, and Killing the Devil, the movie that she actually directed, if memory serves. Yes. Mm-hmm. And really, when you look at all four of these films, they all have a spiritual aspect to them. I mean, Valerie and her Week of Wonders, you've got the monk slash devil character in Killing the Devil right there in the title. In in Fruit of Paradise, you have, again, this kind of devilish character and retelling the story of the Garden of Eden. And I love in Witchhammer, right at the beginning, after you have that crazy guy giving the little bit of an intro, you have all of these women's bodies, and they're all in a state of undress. And then right there, smack dab in the center of screen for one of the, the last shots of that opening, it's a woman Eating an apple. And I'm like, oh, that is so nice. Thank you, Esther.
6: And it's such a great nod to Fruit of Paradise. But I really, I think, in particular, love. And because they show up in so many of the films she works on, I think, or at least I assume it's something that has to kind of be credited to her influence. But in all of the movies she works on, for the most part, or at least a lot of them, there are these great scenes of people eating. Not just sort of solo eating like you're talking about with the woman in the apple, but all these sequences of people sitting down at a banquet table. Like it happens in Daisies, it happens in Valerie and her Week of Wonders, it happens in a report on the party and the guests. The timing of when it happens here is so nuts because it's that great contrast between all of these poor people being tortured and burned and everyone profiting from it is just gorging
2: themselves stupid. Well, that the woman who ignites this whole thing, again, it's very motivated by food. She's given a piece of the host to eat, and then she spits it out, and she wants to secret it to a woman who owns a cow so that the cow can, again, give milk. And this old woman who spit out the host was Promised what? Uh, a bag of flour and some peas. And
6: she really wants
2: those peas. I know. She really wants those peas because she's starving. That contrast of this poor old woman desperate to get these peas. And then, yeah, all of these fat cats sitting around that banquet table. And yeah, you get that a few times of them around that banquet table and just gorging and being just the most disgusting guys, one of the touches that I love so much is one of those guys at the table wears these huge round glasses with these little black marks on them that just make it look like angry eyebrows every single time you see him. I absolutely love those glasses because they just characterize the the guy Perfectly.
0: Yeah, I kept thinking of, of David Hockney and then also Dana Carvey, his master of disguise, every <laughs> time he shows up. He, they're definitely emoji glasses. That scene where he talks about bodily pain and like, this is the way to get, you know, this is the way to get information. Um, I just love that there's this like David Hockney looking guy going on about <laughs> the importance of bodily pain and what it'll do to get to, quote unquote, the truth.
6: There is also a lot of really interesting dialogue about human bodies. Bobbling has that great, really chilling line that will always be stuck in my brain, where I think it's his servant who gives him that fantastic foot massage.
2: Yes. (laughs) is,
6: Is asking him about the witches and what's to become of them. And he basically said that they're all just meat their blood putrefaction and nothing underneath like even when he's talking about Susanna and how beautiful she is he's not like some of the characters in Mark of the Devil or Witchfinder General where they're motivated by sexual lust it's like he's kind of motivated by that but in that line of dialogue it just makes it so much more nihilistic because he's like yeah she's pretty but Ultimately, that doesn't mean anything because she's just going to rot like everyone else. Like, yikes.
2: Well, I'm wondering with his pal, his servant, the one who's giving him the foot massage, I wonder if he's even interested in women. And there's that line at the very end of the film where it says, and he even got married. Like, that was a surprise. Like, okay. So I, I when that massage was happening, when a few other things happened in the film, I kept thinking, I he's being coded as gay or at least very sexually ambivalent to women would you give a guy a foot massage
5: you know i'm kind of tired i can use a foot massage myself yo 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 man you best back off i'm getting a little pissed here
0: yeah well i mean the film opens with a screed against woman is sin is how it opens and this is like bringing up a question i don't i don't know from communion like i don't really know what the penalty should be for like sneaking away a communion wafer or really what that does to you in terms of like your actual soul malleus maleficarum aside i mean it is a representation of christ's
2: body well and depending on what you believe you could believe in the full transubstantiation which is that the host actually becomes like the literal body of christ so it's it could be perceived as a major sin that you're spitting out Christ's actual flesh. So I can kind of see, but at the same time, they take this molehill and they build it into a huge mountain of bodies.
6: I was raised Catholic and using the host for anything other than, you know, putting it in your mouth during communion is hugely frowned upon. But watching this, it, it definitely seems like what Mike was saying where like, yes, it's bad and it's scandalous, but the main priest who just says, you know, she's just trying to help. She's uneducated. She doesn't know any better. I think that probably would be the general response. And they're just using it as an excuse to sort of fuel this hysteria because it's all founded on this, the hatred for women. And I think You could also read it as a hatred for poor people or a disdain for poor
2: people. Yeah, it's very much why don't poor people buy more money kind of thing.
6: Yeah, lots of parallels to today.
2: We've seen this thing play out so many times. I was reminded, of course, of some of the stuff that I mentioned before, the show trials and those things. Also, of course... Being an American, I see things through the lens of stuff like HUAC or – I was even thinking of the Satanic Panic from the 80s and just the stories that they tell and how they were all being coached to say the exact same thing. And after they're being tortured and fed these lines, that faraway look that the people would get in their eyes as they were recounting the details of the awful truth that they were being fed – It was just very chilling for me. Everybody in here is giving such a good performance. And even if people weren't professional actors, to do that halting, stuttering kind of thing would play perfectly because they are being fed these lines and they can't necessarily remember them all as well as they should. So I think that actually kind of plays to the strength of the film.
6: Not to be this person, which I often am, most of the cast, maybe some of the younger actresses aside, they all saw some shit because they survived the Holocaust. In a lot of ways, this really nails that sense of people who are traumatized in a way that I think is so perfect. Like exactly like you were saying, that sort of blank deer in the headlight stare where it's like the, they, the person has checked out. And they're no longer capable of rational thought. When they ask, are you sure this happened? You know that this isn't real. And it's like, they're just not even registering. It's so chilling.
2: I didn't even recognize the guy that plays Bobling, Vladimir Schmeral, I think is the gentleman's name. He had been working since the late 30s, which is interesting, too, because This is uh, Adekar Vavra, as I said, and Vavra was no spring chicken. There were those directors who were around way before the, the FAMU crowd, before the Czech New Wave, and some people went with it, and they said, listen, this is a shot in the arm for Czech filmmaking, and they just got right in there, and then there were others that were much more resistant to it, and what are these kids doing, kind of thing. Vavra feels, to me, looked at this as being very favorable. That he was working with Krumbakova, I think, was a very good thing, that he had that spirit of youth on his side with this, and he had been making films, mostly writing films, for decades, but This film feels like it could have been made by one of the members of the Czech New Wave just because there's such a vitality to it. It doesn't feel like this guy's been making movies for 30-some, close to 40 years at this point.
6: People were so frustrated with him at a certain point and saw him as being a collaborator because he was willing to work with the communist censors, to a degree at least, to keep being able to make films, unlike so many of his peers at the time. And I feel like looking back on a situation like that, it's really hard to judge. I mean, it's easy to say, you know, he should have stood up for what was right and not collaborated. But it's also he's an artist, he wants to make films, he also needs to make a living and support himself
0: that speaks to some one of the really interesting things about this film is just i think the way that it explores the ways all the men are turning on each other in the film you know these people who were functioning collaborators until they could no longer and you know i think their journeys are all pretty interesting and a lot more nuanced than i would have expected going into this initially would he have seen himself in one of those roles you know or all of those roles That is always the interesting thing
6: to me, especially considering films made under Soviet totalitarianism is if anybody was making a film that was about either in a more direct way or a more symbolic way, kind of like this film... About those issues of persecution and collaboration, where did they see themselves in their own films? Like, which characters did they sympathize with? And here, it's pretty obvious that we're supposed to sympathize with the main priest, who's the one that ultimately winds up being persecuted at the end of the film, but...
2: The Lautner character, I think? Yes, Lautner. Ila Roman-chick.
6: He's great, but he also it's a very anti Hollywood sort of thing where he's not just this Oscar Schindler type character who's just a good guy trying to help people like he's flawed and he's revealed to be more complicated than just this sort of two dimensional saintly priest type figure.
0: That makes sense, too, because in that interview in Golden 60s, he he outright expresses disdain for American cinema. He's like, I can't watch any of it. I don't know what year that was made. It seems like a big and bold statement, but he just dismisses the entire nation of filmmaking as pointless. It's wonderful.
2: So dour at that point. I mean, at that point, he's seen some shit, and it's just like, yep, no, I'm good, thanks. He's not one of these guys, I think, that tried to— make it in the american market he's just like no i'm good right here thank you very much it is remarkable that this came out in 70 and that it actually had a release that it wasn't one of these films that was banned before it even got out there because we've talked about many films like that in the past and you know you look at something like the ear or i'm trying to think of another like 69 70 type of film where it's just like the cremator right the cremator, yeah, you're a really dangerous territory, so maybe you should back down a little bit. But no, this is guns blazing. I'm very surprised, maybe because he was more of a friendly figure with the Communist Party, that this managed to get out there.
0: Well, not to keep harping on that that documentary interview, but like he says in that, that the, the film, they wouldn't play it in Prague But it would play in the suburbs, which like is a total upending of what you would expect from like, you know, like an American approach. Like it was a hit in the suburbs. He calls it a hit film. I don't know what you measure a hit by in 1970 Czechoslovakian filmmaking.
6: Not getting canceled. That makes it a
0: hit. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, but like, I mean, as, as an artist, like you know, I can make a thing that I'm proud of. And I think everybody hates it if 50 people see it, right? So I mean, like, it just puts me I wonder about his headspace as an artist and what, you know, what it means to him for this movie to have been a hit.
6: Yeah. And it's such a weird thing to think about, like, why maybe this passed when certain other things didn't. And it made me think a lot, actually, about Andrzej Żuawski's third part of the night, his first film, which is all about the Nazi occupation, but has all of these parallels to what was going on in communist Poland. And it's also it's basically the year after this. And part of why that film was able to pass the censors when his second feature, The Devil Was Not, is because his father had a co-writing credit and he was this big sort of polish resistance hero and everybody thought of him as this kind of really well respected guy and so i think that's why his son's film also because it was a period piece made it a little bit easier for the censors to say yes okay you know we'll put this out because i do think a lot of these directors intentionally made period set films with the hope that they could say, oh, no, this is nothing about communism. This is this is totally just about the witch hunts in the 1600s, not anything more.
2: I don't know how much this comes through in the film, but reading the book, I found it interesting that I mentioned uh, in the intro, this was set in Moravia, and there was a big thing in the book as far as who was German living in this area of Czechoslovakia versus who is actually Czech. And then there are also being fights amongst the Protestants and the Catholics. So those are two themes that I don't know if they're in Witchhammer hammer because I'm just not smart enough to pick up on them. But that was definitely something that was in the book and that was – kind of coming through at different times and the translator even had a note in the beginning to say listen when this was written there was a real pride in Czechoslovakia and so all the names were Czech but the translator went through and, and specifically called out which names were German versus which names were Czech, especially when it comes to not necessarily people's names, but city names, to say, like, this had a German name at this point, this had a Czech name at this point, just to show you the difference, and to really show as well the progression of the story to, you know, like we see in Witchhammer the just this old lady who spits out the host, how this becomes a snowball and just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it moves from the small villa to this woman's very palatial estate. And it's interesting, too, that it's the Countess is the one who seems to be – I don't want to say she's behind it all, but she's there kind of holding court. And there's also a few lines in the book where it's like, oh, well, we'll just make her happy, and she wants to be involved with things, but really, we're the ones in charge. And I kind of get that. In the film that she's much more of a figurehead and she gets super upset by any sort of um, religious disdain. So she's very like, we have to persecute these witches.
0: There's the scene where she just says, I can't keep paying for these trials any longer. Like, this is too expensive. And... What that did for me was just like, because I I work in the nonprofit world a lot, you know, and so I know about fundraising, and it put me in this like, oh, yeah, church fundraising in the 17th century. This is what this is. You know, it's wealth extraction that's happening in this very brutal way. And, you know, up to, you know, the very end where, you know, the the deal is being made, and the one, you know, uh, henchman is going to get a whole farm operation or whatever for a third of its actual value. And I'm like, God, this is actually what's happening today in so many ways. But kind of getting back to the 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 church fundraiser that this seems to be, I mean, it just kind of had my, my head spinning as to, to like, well, is this the kind of environment where now I as a poor person might be expected to go to this palatial church to worship and have to recognize that the things that were extracted from my friends and family are being used to line the walls of this place where i'm supposed to worship.
6: I'm so glad you brought that up because i also work in nonprofit and that whole idea really struck me when i watched the film this time around because i think the first time i saw it was before i started working in nonprofit so i don't think i registered the Countess character as much as i did this time but I think she's one of the most interesting characters in the film because A, there's a woman in a position of power, but she really is, like you guys were saying, just this figurehead who lets herself be manipulated because she wants to look good. And she wants that sort of clout of funding these things that are good for the church, but the way that she reacts to all the different mixed messages at the table i love those scenes because you just see in such a clear way how easily manipulated she is it it's sort of like this whole smoke and mirrors thing where when she's told we could go with this judge who's really straightforward and practical he doesn't do anything showy he just wants to weigh whatever the rational decision making is and Whereas everyone else is saying, Oh, but you have to go with this guy. He gets great results. He's burned a whole bunch of witches. And she's like, Yeah, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds appealing. It also made me think that particular part of it where they decide to go with an inquisitor who's known for being more of a showman, maybe made me think a lot about Ken Russell's The Devils and this idea that this whole proceeding is put on just as this giant performance in order to further somebody's political goals, which in if, if you haven't seen the devils, or if you don't know about the particular actual history behind it, those sorts of persecutions at the time in France were as a way to remove power from cities who were independent and to give the power to the state, a.k.a. the king, and that's pretty much how he took over all of France and yanked the power away from these cities.
2: And didn't the devils come out the exact same year as well? Yeah. yeah. Definitely something in the air, because I know you know a lot more about this, but I want to say, like, Witchfinder General was around this time, and Blood on Satan's Claw as well, and I'm not sure about, like, the Wicker Man, but it feels like there was a real resurgence of these let's call them critiques of religion at this point, And just this whole idea of this kind of more folk horror type of thing.
6: Yeah. It's all within, I want to say three or four years because Witchfinder general is 68. It's, it's just so fascinating that people in many different countries who have no connection to each other are pretty much making the same type of
2: film.
0: Yeah. And Wicker man was 73.
2: Okay, and I don't remember when Mother Joan of the Angels was, but that was like the Polish version of the same Devils of Ludon story. That's way earlier in the early 60s. So more about around the time that Witch Hammer is being written, that was 61 was Mother Joan, and this was 63 that the book was written.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it's, you know, if you, if you think about the, the way this is stretched out over a decade-ish or so, it really stretches, uh, you know, when you think about the ways that actual, um, resurgences of witch trials in the 17th century occurred in various places, kind of all simultaneously, especially w- weird when we didn't have as much interconnectivity between places as we do now. So, you know, you've got witch hunts happening everywhere, the Salem Witch Trials, and there's this like really not very well known situation in um, what is now New Mexico that happened in uh, the 17th century. Oh, wow. I had no idea. I've just started reading about it. I've got this book called The Witches of Abiquiu that I'm very excited to get into, but a real hidden history of, you know, what's gone on in the North American continent.
2: The first time I ever heard about the story of The Devils of Lodan was actually flipping through The Exorcist when I was trying to read that when I was way too young to try to read that book. But that was coming out right around the same time as well. And I forget about the book version of The Exorcist being a lot different from the movie version of The Exorcist, but kind of playing on those same fears.
6: It always interests me because, as I said earlier, I grew up... Catholic, but it's not something I've ever identified with. But I'm always curious about how those sorts of movies like the devil, like witch hammer, and certainly like the exorcist, how they read to a more mainstream public who doesn't know about those kind of bizarre <laughs> religious rituals. But I think they deal with it well here because if you have no idea of the actual importance of the Eucharist, it seems even more absurd that, you know, this woman just took this tiny wafer to give to someone's sick animal, and it just sets off the burning of dozens of people.
0: She's getting her metaphysics wrong, right? And like, how is she supposed to know? How is she
2: supposed to know? Well, and I love that she says that a cow is a creature of God, just like man. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but not according to the Catholic Church. Right. Animals don't have souls. That's right. I remember the fight of the uh, two church fronts going back and forth about all dogs go to heaven. And then the other one that's just like, no, animals don't have any souls. <laughs> and then the-
6: I think it highlights the same degree of absurdity that you see in Witchhammer, because what I think a lot of people probably don't know or it just doesn't register is, especially at this time, Most of the people attending those churches couldn't go regularly because they were too busy trying to make a living or it was too far away. They also didn't have any consistent religious studies. They didn't know how to read. They had other concerns like how are they going to feed themselves. And that's something that he doesn't beat you over the head with in this film. But he makes it pretty clear that this is a big obstacle for these people to try to behave how these, you know, puffed up church officials and priests think they should behave. It just highlights in a really fascinating way this class divide between these two communities who live in the same place.
0: The scene that really hit me, and it hits it hits me every time. Now I've watched it a few times, is that moment where the priest says foolish superstitions are sinful to this poor woman and i mean i can only think about myself in that space when i was still kind of wondering about what i thought about metaphysics and all of this is crazy behavior <laughs> you know all of this like to think that a little cracker is going to transform somehow is i mean obviously it's a foolish superstition
2: whose superstitions are more foolish
6: trading one superstition for another
2: yeah, yeah.
0: no wonder she's so bewildered
6: In that part of the world, areas not quite Moravia, which is where this is at the time, but pretty close to there in places like Lithuania, those were some of the areas in Europe to hold out the longest in terms of maintaining their pagan beliefs and pagan rituals and forms of worship. And it was really hard for the Catholic Church to stamp all of that out. And I think as you can see in that great scene where this this poor woman is explaining what to her makes perfect sense is this really great combination of belief systems that I think winds up representing folk religion way more than these kind of structured, organized religions that... So few people actually practice to the letter.
0: It just occurs to me in this in this film, the Eucharist is kind of serving as bait. They're looking. I mean, they've already got witches in custody, right? Or quote unquote witches. They've, you know, so this poor beggar woman is not the only one. But we're seeing this first. Per, you know, the first time where this person is being dragged in. That image of Eucharist as bait is really, really blowing my mind a little bit right now. The more you think about
6: it, the whole thing just feels like an elaborate trap that these people can never escape from. And of course, this character Bobling was based on an actual person with that name who wound up doing these trial quote unquote trials for two decades. And there's just no way for these people to escape. It's like they can't just up and move. They can't complain to someone because as soon as you complain, and this, of course, is such a great parallel to the Soviet show trials. As soon as you complain,
2: as soon as you draw attention to yourself, then you're a target as well. Wattner, the guy who's supposed to be our savior in this, and even for an atheist like me, I'm just like, wow, this guy's really being coded as Jesus, especially towards the end when he's got the beard and just like the little loin cloth, and he's laying back, and you can, you know, he's, I'm just like, yeah, this is total Jesus parable type of thing. But it's like he's supposed to be the voice of reason, but as soon as he brings up anything, it's just like, oh yeah, you're a witch too. I mean, really, it's like Bobling's basically a serial killer like a state-sanctioned serial killer
6: that part of it reminds me so much of oliver reed's character uh father grandier where he but of course because it's oliver reed and because it's a ken russell film grandier is much more over the top and larger than life and more sinful than lautner but I I do think they are both sort of meant to be these sacrificial figures. But in a way, Witchhammer to me is more disturbing because of the way Bubbling is just all powerful. But he's not any one of any real importance. Like in The Devils, you have, you know, Cardinal Richelieu and the king show up, which I think gives them a different significance because we know about their historical importance and their political importance. But bubbling is just this guy who was living on the edge of poverty, running badly, running an inn. And I think that disturbs me so much more knowing that it just is this seemingly random person who through a sheer act of history, winds up gaining all of this power for no reason whatsoever.
0: Wow, what a parallel to our current Supreme Court.
6: Oh,
1: for real. I liked beer. I still like beer.
0: Oof, yeah. Oh.
2: The line that gets me watching this film is when they are about to burn the first batch of witches, and the woman speaks out, and she talks about how she was tortured. And it looks for a second like the Countess is concerned, And then it's like, oh, no, no. It was just the Spanish boot and thumbscrews. It's all regular. And it's like, oh, okay. And then you get to see throughout the film what thumbscrews are doing. You get to see people's feet and legs in ruins. And they're the ones that are giving us that thousand-yard stare as they recount things. Even the guy who is supposed to be Lautner's friend and He's just like, oh, no, I saw you with the devil and you were here. And it was just like, wow, this is so amazing that, you know, everyone can be turned against everyone else if you just apply the right pressure.
6: It's horrifying. But I do think through that friend character who used to be an Inquisition judge in his own right, that's one of the best portrayals of how somebody kind of slips into collaboration and he you just i really despise that character but at the same time what
2: really could he do it's interesting to me being a fan of czech films like i like i said i kind of recognized Bobling because he had been in so many other things really the only actor that i recognized in this whole film was Ilya Proknar, who we've seen in so many movies, playing usually, he's he's not ever really a mustache twirler, you know, but he's usually that, I mean, he plays Nazis so much or the main character in The Cremator, his friend, you know, just like these guys who are, not doing things that they should be doing and he's right there in this film perfectly cast but almost like it took me a little while to recognize him because of like the wig that he was wearing and the the outfit and everything but as soon as he showed up and when i recognized him i was like oh yeah he's not going to be up to any good and he is one of the zealots he's just like oh you want me to go arrest all these people sure yeah i'll do that because I mean, him as an actor, you know, not not the man himself, who is probably a very, very sweet man. But the characters he plays, he is almost always like, oh, there's something I can do to get ahead in the world by fucking someone else over. Yeah, I'm right there. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Let's do this.
6: Yeah. The more we talk about this, the more horrifying it is just how many parallels there are
0: to today.
2: You get so political on this show.
0: I mean, one of the things that bothers me about the socialite, the the countess, is her just her complete... I mean, this is entertainment for her. Yes,
6: and you don't realize it at first. At first, she actually seems sympathetic. But at least by halfway through the film, you realize that she's just as awful as everyone else. And it's not even that she's some you know, stupid, uneducated woman who's manipulated by these men, it's that she's equally callous.
0: Well, I'm sure she's a bored out of her mind. She looks at, you know, the moment when she first comes in, she's like, Oh, I want to see a witch, right? She's like, I really want to see a witch. And it makes me wonder, actually, if one of the reasons that she wants to rescind funding is not so much that, you know, she's feeling like it's too much it's that she's not getting what she wants i feel like she's saying like well you keep bringing in these people but none of these people are witches
6: i hadn't thought about that but that actually makes a lot of sense sort of there's a show being put on but not the sort of creepy supernatural show that i had signed up for
0: yeah which is kind of how I went into this film <laughs> when I think about it, right? Where I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch a witch movie, and I'm like, yeah, there's no, there's no witches in here. This is, a film. this is something movie. else.
2: What do you mean, there's no witches in here? Why else would they put I, these
0: women to death? Like, I want my money back. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was great. This was great.
6: My favorite, though, definitely is that hooded sort of narrator slash chorus type guy. And I don't think Vavra overuses him, but he just shows up at exactly the right time spouting this creepy malefis, Maleficarum type language about how women are Satan on earth. <laughs> Truly frightening.
0: He can't win.
2: We need to talk about the music too. Especially the opening is just terrific. And I love the theme that comes back throughout this film, but the The use of the voices during the opening, I think, is really nice, and it sets the tone so well for it, even though, to your point, you expect it to be a lot more like magic and mischief kind of stuff, but it really sets that dread in your bones.
6: I think, in general, so many things about this film, including the cinematography, all sort of work to underscore that sense of dread that just grows dread and horror that these people could actually be so terrible.
0: I was expecting, especially Mike, because the last time we did um, did one of these, we were talking about um, Hotel Ozone, and I expected something cinematographically more like that. Like, I was expecting something a little bit different going into this, and I was so delighted to see something that looked like a Bergman film or, uh, you know, I mean, something like that. Something very, like, very grand or a drier film.
2: Okay, yeah, I can see both of that when you say it.
0: Makes me want to see Joan of Arc, but I've I've waited. But I'm going to watch Joan of Arc very soon because Uh. it goes...
6: It's incredible. But speaking of dryer, there is a lot in common between this and and Day of Wrath, which are both similarly about this kind of persecution, but they also look similarly gloom and dread inducing.
2: Because we've, I've talked about color films before, but so many of the ones that I love end up being the black and white ones. You know, thinking about Partying Guests, thinking about Fifth Horseman as Fear, uh, The Cremator, all of these beautifully shot black and white films in an age where they could be shooting colors. I, I mean, talking about uh, Prockner again, he the, I think his previous film to this was uh, All My Good Countrymen, which was a beautiful color film, but yet here's this just, yeah, lush, gorgeous black and white, and just it sets the tone so beautifully.
6: I can't imagine this in color, actually. <laughs> no,
2: no, no, definitely not. I mean, you look at something like Witchfinder General, and it's like, yeah, okay, this makes sense in color, but this film, it it just wouldn't compute. I don't think it would be nearly as hard-hitting if this was in color there are times where it feels like we're watching a documentary. You know, there are some shots where it's just like, oh, okay, there's a a fly on the wall with a camera here. How are we even seeing this shot?
6: I think that's what makes it feel so harrowing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is about a structure that's forcing a binary, you know, a very binary structure of what is good and what is evil. And so black and white, I think, really lends to that in a way that, like, Color would bring more nuance to it, I guess.
2: It even makes the burning at the stake scenes even more harrowing, you know, not having that it orange does. to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I gotta say, having that first burning come so early. I, I did a time check and I was like, Good God, this is happening so early in the film. What's not, what's coming, you know? Yeah, he really plays with you.
2: It's like once you're halfway through the film, I, I I didn't do exactly the same, but I looked down at one point, I was just like, whew, okay, well, Witch Hunt over, we can move on to other stuff. What's this movie going to do? And it's like, no, no, this is just a little breather before the next round, and the next round will be even worse. Yeah,
0: when they kill your favorite character in the first act.
2: The, what, the second round capturing uh the girl that lives with lautner kind of his servant aka maybe his side piece Maybe so
6: he he admits at the end of the film that they used to have a sexual relationship and this is sort of what i was referring to earlier when i was saying that even though he's the good guy and he's sort of the the film doesn't really have a hero but he's sort of the heroic protagonist type or at least the good guy but he's not really because at the end he admits that he's known Susanna her entire life and she came to live with them because his mother basically adopted her and when his mother died he kept her on and then, I guess, at some point, when she became more mature, one would hope, even though she's, you know, quite young when the when the film takes place, he's, he admits that they used to have a sexual relationship, even though he's the village priest, but that he told her they had to stop and she had to find someone to get married to. And it's just like, yeah, okay, maybe not the best guy. <laughs>
2: Yeah, they make a real point in the book of saying, like, she'll never find a man because she is the, you know, living with this priest and there's just a stigma that's attached to her. Even if they didn't talk about the sexual relationship at that point in the book, it was just like, yeah, yeah, she's very jealous of another woman who's getting married because she's like, yeah, I'll never get married because here I am with, um, Lautner. So. That's it for me. Yeah, so I I found that interesting that uh, they just were ruling her out of being eligible at that point already. And she was only, I want to say in the book, she's like 16, 18 at most.
6: Yeah, that's why I sort of assumed that it was an underage sexual relationship.
2: I mean, priests don't do that. So that's just, it's purely a fiction.
6: Purely. It is interesting, though, that you know, I think, at least for me, I saw this after already seeing most of those other witch hunting movies we've been talking about, like The Devils, and especially Witchfinder General. And the first time I saw this, I just immediately assumed that it was going to be a similar Witchfinder General type situation where Bubbling would see Susanna, would lust after her. And that's what would really set the witch hunting in motion and they do kind of nod to that possibility that you know she's so beautiful everyone lusts after her but it almost feels like a red herring it's like actually no no one cares about that
2: yeah after they strip her naked and examine her body and find that mole and it doesn't bleed the devil mark that's as good as the sign confession right there so
0: and that's how biopsies were born
2: that they are going in and almost as soon as they capture a quote unquote witch that they start to cut their hair and just like take away that, power let's say of a woman in her long beautiful hair like no matter whether it's the old crone or whether it's the young girls they just immediately start cutting their hair and it's very similar to I, like you just said like uh, Joan of Arc like that's one of the things I always think of is that her face and that short hair and just how she's been her hair's butchered basically in in that film and it's very similar in this too it's just like no no we're going to Take this away from a woman.
0: One of the films that I've made as in, in my Supercut career is a film called the Equal Plus Opposite, which is uh, focused on uh, trans and uh, gender nonconforming, mostly feminine figures throughout the history of cinema, which is a very long, <laughs> a long history. I opened that film with the thing that traumatized me most as a trans woman looking at uh, The Crying Game, which was the scene towards the end where uh, Dill is forced to cut her own hair and she, you know, she's a hairdresser. And so she has to cut her own hair to like, you know, I guess, quote unquote, look more masculine to sneak around. And I think about um, haircutting scenes like that in in cinema all the time from just that perspective of not just being a feminine figure with longer hair, but somebody who is, who is trans as who's trans feminine has really had to make that a big part of my, um, you know, self-esteem. Right. <laughs> But, like, the other thing that really struck me, it, it, you know, in this film, but also in my re-watching of Witchfinder General, Vincent Price has this, like, really pretty, very pretty bob. <laughs> very pretty. <laughs> it's like, really bangs. worth looking at. Oh, yeah. And... I was just like thinking about like, I mean, obviously, gender fluctuates over history, as we understand gender expression. But like, you know, masculinity retains its masculinity, feminine ret- femininity retains its femininity. I don't know, I I really want to do a deeper trans reading of this film later. I'm not ready for it, you know, but I think I'm getting there. I've got to watch it maybe two or three more times before I've got something to say about what I think about this film from a trans perspective.
6: It's so fascinating, like from that particular lens, because what I think makes this, and I know I said this a little bit earlier, but what I think makes this feel so different from Witchfinder general and also Mark of the devil is in those films, women's bodies are always sexualized and extremely feminized, and turned into property that is sought after. And in both of them, really, one of the big motivations for the witch hunts is, here's this woman we want to have sex with or possess in some way. And so we're going to use our perceived political power to get what we want and fulfill those erotic urges. But this does something so different. And from that great opening through to the haircutting scenes that we're talking about, I feel like it makes this very strange effort to desexualize the women. And that haircutting, I think it's so unusual to see that happen to the older women, like you pointed out, because older women are not usually shown as being overtly sexual or even overtly feminine erotic figures in film most of the time. And so this sense that they even have to take the old women's hair is just such an unexpected element. And I'm guessing that Krumbakova had a lot to do with that. One thing that we haven't talked about is the fact that the opening credit sequence is over top of Goya's sleep of reason produces monsters with that great drawing of a guy who I think is supposed to be Goya, who's asleep at this table with his head down and has all of these kind of demons and bats and creatures of the night swarming around him. And that collection that the drawing is from were these prints that were basically made to show how awful Spanish society was, how greedy they were, how superstitious they were, and it has that that famous quote that I think probably everybody knows, fantasy abandoned by reason produces impossible monsters, mm-hmm. which I think is such a great sort of minor inclusion from Vavra here to show those sorts of parallels between not only Moravian society in the 17th century, but Czech life in the 60s and connecting it back to Spanish society in the late 18, early 1900s. This time around was making me think of just how many great political parallels you can find to different things in this film.
2: When you said you were thinking about a famous quote, I thought it was that nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition.
0: (laughs) I think everybody expects the Spanish Inquisition at this point. (laughs) Nobody
6: expects the Moravian Inquisition. Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) Coming to a town near you. Yes. It's already here. I kind of wonder if Richard O'Brien saw this and was thinking about this narrator. (laughs) I hope so. <laughs> I know, right? I was like that's a that's a fiction that I want to come true.
2: <laughs> Back in the 2000s, Facets put this out on VHS with that guy's face on the cover, tinted red with Witch's Hammer really big in this red horror movie font. I suppose that's one way to sell a movie. <laughs> For real.
6: I well, would have bought it. But I think that's one of the big problems. This movie and certainly some of the other movies we're talking about is They're so hard to market because I think the instinct is let's make this seem like a horror movie about witches when really it's this super grim political allegory. And so I think this is a great film. I mean, we've basically been saying that all along, but it might sort of hamper people's enjoyment of it if they go into it thinking it's going to be the complete opposite
2: of what it is. Bringing up The Trial of Joan of Arc definitely is a much better film to compare this to some of the others where you're thinking it's going to be big and flashy and sexy and intrigue and all this stuff. I mean, it ain't that, but man, it grabs you.
0: It is
6: sexless.
2: Yeah,
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's just shocking for the time. Aside from the foot massage. Yeah, right. That was it. That was the one. That was the money shot right there. Well, and...
6: What I don't think I noticed previous times that I watched this, but did this time around is almost every single scene where Boebling and his assistant are shown together. His assistant is giving him a massage and is like into it. It's not this sort of ginger light shoulder massage. It almost reminded me. And I just randomly have been watching a lot of Zatoichi movies lately (laughs) but <laughs> it's a shiatsu massage? It, so it reminded me a lot of the way certain Chanbara films and even certain kind of pinky violence and like 70s crime movies in Japan, the way that certain Yakuza bosses are represented is a lot of the time they're in the middle of getting a massage in, totally, in scenes where they're talking about committing some sort of crime or some sort of violence, which is exactly what Bobling is doing here. And it's a really interesting way to sort of signify power.
2: Yeah, it's like a decadence that isn't overly decadent, but definitely is. Yeah. Who else is getting massaged in this movie? Nobody. That's who.
6: No one.
2: No. Nope. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages.
1: Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and
2: buttons? there's got to be a better way
1: now there is with good job brain an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun
3: i just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now i can never shake that mental image thanks good job brain
1: good job brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free it's a podcast
4: Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. In
1: 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King dreams for sale the twilight zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to rod serling's legacy featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast dreams for sale can be found on itunes and at twilightzone85.com dreams for sale we'll be waiting for you in the twilight zone
4: it's not easy having a good time And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode... That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year, at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
7: Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film Eventories podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rhodes jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck Plam! the door opens, it's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Ackbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe that war is something to be proud of, but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films.
2: The thing that I learned from working with the Palmans is that tension depends on clock. you need to have the sense that time is running out
7: maybe oscar-winning sound designer mark mangini's insightful chat about his work on blade runner 2049
3: not a not a single sound from the original blade runner in the new film a great deal of inspiration
7: that's the film podcast with me jamie benning i'm chris cooling from forgotten tv
4: and you're listening to the projection booth the ultimate movie podcast
2: Right, we'll be back next week with a look at who wants a nice plate of spinach. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam and Rain. Rain, what's the latest with you?
0: I just finished my MFA um and uh, the Intermediate and Digital Arts MFA at UMBC. If you need a great MFA, go there. So now I'm trying to figure out what I'm gonna do with the rest of my life, right? Got a lot of art projects in the works, nothing that's ready for um, showcasing yet. I've got my band, Santa Labrata has just booked its first gig. So by the time you hear this, I'll have played my first in-person show with my rock band, Santa Labrata. And, um, find me, um, at rain.com and that's spelled R-A-H-N-E dot com. And then you can find me on my socials, rain Alexander on what have you. I'm not on TikTok so don't look for me there.
2: (laughs) And Sam, how about you? What's going on in your world?
0: Well, a couple months ago, I had
6: a book come out called The Legacy of World War II in European Art House Cinema, which you can find from McFarland Books. I also started a Patreon, and that is probably the best place to find all of my work. I mean, I have a lot of Blu-ray commentaries in the works, but you can find me there at patreon.com slash Sam And I also somewhat recently started a new podcast called Twitch of the Death Nerve that's all about psychotronic cinema. So we cover lots of different genres.
2: Thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
1: end of this episode of the projection booth and as the end credits roll we wanted to thank you the listening
5: audience here at the projection booth podcast with mike white host extraordinaire bang